Welcome back to Swiftly Speaking, folks. My name is Paul Hudson, and today I have my friend Carolyn Nitz with me. She's been talking about uh, improving your debugging skills, how to work with legacy code in big projects, and also how to organize your own Swift conferences. Uh, I've got folks in YouTube. Awesome. Thank you very much for coming. I have questions for her, but you can go ahead and ask for questions in the chat window. I'll do my best to help her uh, grill them fully and get all the full answers out of her as best we can as we progress. Once again, I'd like to thank Instabug for sponsoring the event. Uh, they make it super easy to uh, find and fix problems in your projects. By adding their SDK, you get reproduction steps, you get network logs, and more to help you really solve those problems. Carola, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, given the circumstances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A little bit tired. It's 8 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> These are the amazing sacrifices you make for us, you see. <laughs> it's 4 p.m. here. It's quite comfortable for me. But for you, 8 a.m. in the morning, that's, that's, that's hard. I'm not used to that as a developer. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Carol, um, you know, for folks that recognize your experience, you are now at Netflix. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. I started there in September. Yeah, and, but previously so you were working at... And then you were in VLC, before that you were Apple. You've been doing iOS there for quite a while now, right? Yeah, since 2012, actually, to be exact. First, there were like a couple of startups, and then I was working at a consulting company where I learned a lot in Berlin. And then Apple, for a year and a half, I worked on the Maps team, which was, that was very eye-opening to work there. It's such a big company, and it's, I mean, it's every iOS developer's dream, right? But it also meant I had to leave this community and I couldn't work on open source anymore, which at some point I realized was very important to me. So I went over to VLC. I worked full time on open source and I got to leave VLC for iOS for mm. two years. And after that, I missed also being at a bigger company again and have more impact. So Netflix was great and I love it. It's an amazing company. I'm I think, happy there. I think we, we all love Netflix, don't we? <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it is. Honestly, it's great because I can just watch content and I'm, I'm doing work. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things that during lockdown becomes a real life support for people because you can, for us, you know, the kids want to put Netflix on, we all put Netflix on. It just saves the day so many times. So uh, you're doing rewarding work, Carola. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, our first topic is debugging. I've seen you speak about debugging so many times in the past, and you're, you're a great speaker. But I have some questions here about debugging to really drill into uh, the kinds of advantages, mistakes people make, and, and more tips and advice you have to help them do really well at debugging. So let's start off really, really broad and hopefully fairly simple, we'll dig in more. What do you say uh, are the most common problems folks have when they're debugging? Yeah, I think the biggest one is that people just don't know about what kinds of tools they have at hand. Like, for most of them, they stop, they know about the breakpoints, they know maybe about PO and LLDB, um, but they actually don't know, for example, how powerful the view debugger is, or how you can use instruments to learn where your memory issues are, or how you can actually edit a breakpoint, and there are also so many great third-party tools out there. And you just need to know about all of them, right? To be able to like find a problem super fast. It's not just only print debugging. Right, but I guess knowing all the tools out there is, is quite a job, right? Because there's, there are dozens, easily dozens. There's maybe oh, yeah. three or four dozen out there doing various things, sometimes doing very similar things. And you gotta know which bits slightly better in this case and in this case. You know, it's hard when you're starting out, presumably, to try and get an idea of all the tools that really are out there. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I still learn, like, from my colleagues as well. Um, but I guess if you go in, um, I've given a couple of talks where I hope, like, people get an overview of, like, what is out there. And there, you link to a couple of other talks, you link to a couple of other documents, and then you just go in and, like, see what is out there and how that might help you. Right. We've got a comment here from Prathamesh Kawaka who says, 99% of my debugging is breakpoints and PO. Um, so yeah. 
<laughs> well, let's, let's address not necessarily Prathamash directly, but folks who happen to be in the same case as Prathamash. Let's assume we're asking for a friend here. If 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 if, if we want to take, improve this workflow beyond just printing stuff out using PO or similar, and then adding a breakpoint here and there, there must be some really core tools that you lean on a heck of a lot. Yeah, I mean, the UI view debugger is for me like really, really important, especially when you have layout issues. Um, you get to see so much more about what is wrong, like what kinds of you can focus in on the constraints, for example, and then you notice like, oh, this is an ambiguous constraint. I didn't even notice that when I laid out my code. So that is definitely for me doing a lot of UI work, a very, very important tool. Right, because that, that's where you, you press the is it, I forget what the button's called, but and it explodes your UI in 3D. You can spin it around, you can filter by depth the layers, and you can dig in and say, you know, what, what do you have for constraints or why are you opaque and similar? And it really gives you an idea of what's actually happening with your finished code, right? Yeah, and not only that, actually, I don't think a lot of people realize you get the addresses in the view debugger, right, for like a certain view. If you take that, if you cast that address to whatever object it is, let's say UI view, you can actually on the fly change properties. So sometimes what I do is like, I'm just changing the background color of something just to make sure, oh, is that actually visible? And once you hit like resume again, it changes on the fly, the color, right? Of the background color, and you can manipulate code that way. Right, so there you go. It sounds like, sounds like an immediate win. If you're doing PL already printing things out, Use a view debugger, find the view you want, get the address for it, and then PO that and actually then modify it and see it change live, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Now, is a related question to that. This is a random one, but I'm curious. When you're thinking to yourself, is this view visible? You give it background color. We all give it background color. Which background color do you choose? I use red. I yes, use red. I use red as well. Good. <laughs> uh, why are people using like blue, purple? I, I think they are. The, those weird people over there are daring to use different colors than red. Um, but yeah, I think it is mostly red. Yeah. I just so easy. It, yeah, it just stands out as a big warning sign. This view, why is it doing over, over yeah. there? It shouldn't be over there. It should be over here or, or bigger or behind something else. And yeah, red just screams problems to me, I guess. Yeah, same. Someone asked, uh, pointed out here, um, Adebiye said, um, instruments is overwhelming. And I think that's a fair statement to make. Uh, instruments is overwhelming because there are lots of instruments for a start. Then when you launch one of them, like Time Profiler, there are lots of sections to that instrument, so you can really dig into various different ideas. And Systems Tracer is particularly notorious for having sections within sections within sections within sections. Um, and that's hard. I mean, the tools are out there, but with instruments being quite so daunting, what advice would you have to help someone put a toe into instruments in an easy, easier way? I have to admit, I'm myself not using instruments super often. It's only when I have like really, really gnarly problems. Like for example, when we see like a very, very high memory increase. And what I usually do is like, because I also forget, right? Sometimes how everything works. I'm trying to look at WWDC videos where people explain how to use it. Or sometimes you have great blog posts as well, where they're just like breaking everything down for you, how to best use it. Or sometimes if you have a good colleague who knows about these things, involve them, hmm. work together on that. Well, I guess you're lucky there because um, you have <laughs> you have a Netflix, you have Jordana, you now have Adam Bell as well. And I'm sure some other great engineers. You've got a, 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 a team around you to help you learn and find and fix things, presumably. You can ask them lots of questions. Yes, absolutely. I, I actually lean on my colleagues. They lean on me. I guess that's what a team is for, right? Yeah. So often folks um, like Prathamesh who is doing PO or similar, or his friend is doing it, <laughs> um, that that mostly works. You go, uh, this, this name thing isn't quite right. What's going on there? So you pause the program, go to the terminal and type PO name or something like that. And Swift will say, there is no name. What do you mean name? And you're like, no, no, it's right there. I can see it. Why can't you see it? And Swift will deny all knowledge of there being a name. And you're like, oh, God. when you hit that kind of wall, and sadly, we do still hit that kind of wall, where do you go next? Where, where do you go next? 
I mean, honestly, I also use a lot of PO. And for something like this, I fall back to print debugging sometimes. If it's just too hard to figure out what's wrong with my debugging, yeah, print debugging is the way that I solve this. Um, but sometimes if it's just like a property that is missing, it's usually just because my debugger doesn't know what kind of object I'm having there in the first place. So then it's casting and then I can call that method because you cannot always just stop your program and add another print command in, especially if you're trying to debug a really, really hard edge case, right? So, yeah. yeah. So how, how often do you fall back on, you know, just literally scattering print statements around? Because you, you, you know most, if not all of Apple's debugging tools, but how often do you literally say, right, I've exhausted everything now, I'm gonna put a print OMG here and see what comes out basically? I actually do that when I run through a certain code path very, very often, and I need to actually follow how, what kind of like input that method got after mm. over time, then I definitely use it quite often. But other than that, I use PO a lot. Yeah. yeah. I actually made a simple Xcode source editor extension that you press a button, it adds print, I am in X named method. Uh, as it's you know as in, in every method you have in your in your in your class uh, and then you can mm -hmm. press a button to remove them all in one pass as well so it makes it very easy to find oh, these nice. following through and then unfollowing through very quickly if i had any time in my hands i'd add it so it does it when it leaves the method as well because you could use you know print entering method a defer print leave method method a and it would do it when it left the method but i have no time carola you know it's like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that um, people struggle with, and I certainly struggle with, is when you're facing a large problem, you're thinking to yourself, uh, I could try print, I could try breakpoints, I could try watchpoints, I could try any number of other tools available to me. How would you try and uh, solve that problem more quickly? What's your, your tip for looking at a problem and thinking, what's the fastest way through this into uh, the answer? Usually... Um it's breaking it up if you can, like even if it's just something simple, like you add two values and then you return this, just maybe save it into like a local variable to figure that out if the local variable is fine and then return on the next line. That's like an easy like way of breaking something up. But sometimes you have like even more problem, like bigger problems that you're trying to debug where like the breaking up helps a lot. Yes. Um, and then if you have bigger problems, what else do I do? It's a good question. Do you simplifying. have big problems? <laughs> yes, of course, of course. But it's also just like simplifying, right? If you have, for example, a custom view that does a lot and you need to figure out, oh, is the problem actually my custom view or is it something else, right? Then you just replace the custom view with the standard Apple view just to figure out like, where is actually my problem and just remove sometimes functions i honestly i've had it before where i just like commented out code and like looked at it does it work now okay it's somewhere in the commented out code right yeah so it's, it's like um this to be fair was the way we'd solve compiler errors in swift ui when it first shipped last year you'd put some perfectly mm -hmm. normal code in make one tiny mistake you put you you did pass something incorrectly and you'd get a useless error message along the lines of you provided me a, a CG float. I want an optional CG float. And like, that makes no sense. <laughs> but it, it was it was misdiagnosing the errors. You, you basically delete half your code and the errors still be there. You delete, delete half of the remaining code and it would go away. Like, okay, so it's, it's in there somewhere is the problem. You do like a binary chop almost on your code to try and find where the problem might be. And it it was exhausting. Uh, and uh, certainly it shouldn't be your first port of call all being well. Um, yeah. I remember actually back when I started out with Swift development, the debugger or like um, the compiler was actually getting confused if you had too complex things and it would throw at you like T1, T2 is not working with this um, CG float and you could just break it down, make it easier. And then the compiler would actually understand what you're trying to do can help you with better error messages. Yeah. So when it comes to debugging something like memory, we've got a question here again, Prathamash Kawaka who says, any tips for the memory debugger? Like if you've got a memory problem, things are not working correctly, 
that's hard to diagnose, right? Because it's not visible anymore. You can't say memory, background, color, red. Um, how would you start to find those kinds of problems? I mean, I would sometimes I add print debugging in the dialog to see if something actually gets dialog when I expect it to be deallocated. Um, then you can also use the memory graph in Xcode where you can just see what is all holding on to certain um, objects. It's like in the same um, view next to the view debugger, I believe. Mm. But then also in um, yeah instruments, you have, what is it called again? I'm always forgetting the name. Um, Paul, help me. Is it leaks? <laughs> yes, yeah, Allocations? yes, leaks. Okay. No, leaks is the one that I'm usually using. If um, Or zombies, and a zombies is also something that can help if you have like memory issues with something that has already been deallocated. Mm. Really depends on what kind of memory issues you're facing. If it's too much, definitely instruments and allocations and the memory um, debugger and the memory graph and otherwise, yeah, so in a zombies for nil objects. I do wonder whether there's a divide between people who had to do memory debugging before Arc came along, before Swift came along for certainly, and those who did it afterwards. Because when I folks, when I meet folks who did, you know, early Arc iOS code or even pre-Arc iOS code, they became intimately familiar with the various memory debugging options. Like NS Zombies were a standard thing. You turn it on regularly to try and figure out what's happening. Uh, and often I meet folks today who've never even heard of NS Zombies and they aren't aware of how useful they are. If, you, if that's you folks, if you're listening to this uh, video, NS Zombies are brilliant. You, it, when it destroys an object, rather than just freeing up to be nil RAM, it puts a new type of object there called a zombie. And when you try and talk to that zombie object, it'll cause a crash and say zombies being talked to. It's just a, a really important warning flag for bad memory access in, in your code. It's been there for 10 years, 15 years. It's, a, it's, an old, it's an old tool, right? It's been around for a very long time. Yeah, that is definitely a great one. Uh, so we've had some more comments about instruments. I think people are genuinely scared of instruments, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and and that's, of course they are. I mean, I find instruments daunting as well. I only use... You know, five or six of the instruments, or maybe seven out there. Um, but they are complex, right? So uh, when it comes to getting into instruments, do you recommend one particular tool you use most of the time or you just try them all out until which one works best for you? I mean, honestly, I really don't use it that super often. It's really just when I have like a memory issue and I need to see, okay, what kind of method is allocating the most Um you can, yeah, I guess you can try it out. WWDC videos have been the best for me so far, like one-on-one -on -one instruments and going actually back even to older videos to get an overview of what tools are out there. Yeah. I think if I could recommend to folks, you know, if you could do one change to improve your debugging workflow, I would say to use conditional breakpoints more. That's my personal favorite thing because you can add breakpoints you know, throughout your network stack, for example, throughout your buying stack, throughout your authentication stack, whatever it is you're working on, and then just disable them all with a condition, is network debugging true? Is authentication debugging true as an enum elsewhere in your code? And just leave them there forever. Leave the whole stack of, watch a uh, breakpoint, sorry, in there forever and ever and ever, all disabled, all doing nothing until you enable an enum, make that one, and bang, now you're debugging networking, bang, now you're debugging authentication. That's my personal number one fix for better debugging. If you want to recommend somebody what your number one best piece of advice, only one here, please, best piece of advice <laughs> to improve debugging, what would it be? For me, it's really use PO to actually manipulate objects on the fly. It helped me so, so much where you just cast an address and then set the background color, set a frame. You can on the fly while your program is running, change anything in there. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Manuel Carrasco Molina um, stuff adds um, start by using gauges and drop uh, and deep dive in instruments. And that's actually quite important because um, gauges are really nice in, in, in Xcode and um, you can totally ignore them. You know, it's telling you, it's telling you, you know, lots of CPU load, lots of RAM load, whatever, right there in this basic summary of, of your app's horror show. And if you need to go into further, fine instruments, but for so many things these days, you haven't got to go into instruments. You can just stick in Xcode and use Xcode's tools, which is really, really nice, I think. 
Uh, there's, there's a question here. That's my first. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> it's also my first um, thing that I notice when I have like a loop. Like when some, like a memory, something gets allocated a hell of a lot um, because I have a layout loop or something. The gouges are like going up and that's the first time that I see, okay, there's something going wrong when my program just halts. Yeah. Um, there's a question here from Stuff again. Uh, what do you wish for better debugging at WWDC 20? Uh, if you could change one thing, make your debugging life easier, uh, in and this would be wish land territory. I'm be too 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 super lucky here. But uh, what one thing would you change at WWDC 20 to make debugging better? I think I would really love it that I don't have to cast objects anymore when I need to change something from like PO. If I could just in the view debugger immediately like change on a UI stack view. Oh, change mm. the alignment. Oh, right. change immediately to center for a label. Oh, how would that actually look? And I would immediately do that. And I don't need to like go through the pain in P and like PO and cast it. That would be amazing. Didn't Sherlock have that? The the last year or year before's view debugging tool where you could yeah. literally modify things on the fly. You could just basically poke around at them. And that was really I don't know how they did it, but it was really, really nice. Yes, exactly. That was also what I was thinking about. And that is actually a tool that I've also used. And but it would be nice to have it in Xcode, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> because it's also only a limited set, I guess, with Sherlock. I don't know. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's one of those things nice. that I, I, I want Apple to do a bit of acquiring, quite frankly. Um, you know, Reveal is a very, very popular advanced view debugging tool and has many features in Xcode view debugger does not have. We'd love to have that somewhere in Xcode. It's just, I don't copy them, just, just give them a load of money. Here's some money. It's a, round, <laughs> it's a rounding error for Apple. Come on, we can barely even notice 10 million, 20 million, 30 million missing. Boom. Just put that in there and it'd make all our lives easier. Yes, that would be nice. I'm with you. <laughs> so let's uh, park debugging. And we move on to our second topic here, which is legacy apps, because you've worked on some huge code bases in your time. And some of them, like VLC, have been around for a very, very long time. And that, I think, brings with it a different set of skills, different set of requirements, different set of, you know, way of making plans for the future. Uh, and I'd love to know your advice on here. Uh, and let's start off real simple. You know, when you think about what it means to have a legacy code in your project. What What is that? What is legacy code in your definition? I mean, I guess the simplest one is just code from someone else or that you inherited from, yeah, an older version. Like even something that I've written like also years ago that I don't <laughs> know about anymore. It feels like it's code from someone else. So old Carolers code, you're like, who wrote this? Oh, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's like this feeling when you blame something, who wrote that damn line? And you're like, oh shit, it's me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so code from somebody else or potentially from yourself that you've just forgotten about over time. Yeah, that's for me like it's a code. Yeah. And when you're working with legacy code, of course, one of the biggest problems we have is that every year, Apple bumps iOS, Apple bumps macOS, tvOS, watchOS, and then they'll release a whole new set of phones and iPads or watches pretty much every single year. Uh, and that's hard because if you have a large working project, proven, you know, a very low bug count comparatively, and Apple say, hey, iOS 13's out and everything's changed. How do you support that? How do you add new features for iOS 13 while also supporting 12, potentially 11, and maybe even 10? Oof. They're going down to 10. Wow. <laughs> That's really far back. Um, I mean, if you can obviously try to reduce the numbers that you really, really need to support, look at how many users are on that just because it makes it easier and you still have resources that you need to think about, like your developers, right? and your developer's time, um, see what the minimal version is that you definitely need to support. Then I would try, if you can, have a device that you work with that is the lowest supported iOS so that you actually see when there are problems because right. performance is an issue with older devices oftentimes. You can notice those earlier if you're actually developing with the lowest supported device and iOS. Um, yeah, those are the big starters, I guess. 
So, and then make sure if you have tests that you run them not only on iOS 13, but also iOS 12 and 11. What, what, what iOS versions does Netflix support on iOS? We only support the current one and that one minus one. Okay, so that's, see that. So uh, well, yeah, so 12 was a good release because of 11. Mm. Everyone from 11 could get 12. So we, yeah, yeah that, that made our lives much easier because fine, we can upgrade. Sadly, 13 was such a huge release, you know, massive features left, right, and center, you know, combined different data sources, conventional layouts, uh, Swift UI, all this gorgeous SF symbols. And hey, only some devices support it. Um, I think everyone's hoping that iOS 14 will be another iOS 12, a slower, stabler, simpler release that everyone on 13 can get to. So it means then potentially we can say just 14. Yeah. But that is, you're actually touching on a topic that's hard, I guess, for developers. What do you do when you want to, like, for example, work with Combine, but you still have, like, older versions that, or not Combine, but, like, if you have something that is not available on a lower version in general. Yeah, so if you are, You don't want to have two code paths, right? Yeah. Right. You don't want to have two code paths around. So usually you wait with the adoption until you dropped the lowest version so that you can use it everywhere. That's at least like my approach so far. You don't want to have that code path there and the other one for the newer software somewhere else. Yeah. There's certainly an interesting problem that hasn't been solved really yet, which is that developers like you who support iOS N and N minus one, um, you, you can watch DubDub, you know, in 10 days time and go, wow, look at iOS 14. Look at these things I can't actually use. And then what you really want is in a year and a half's time to be told, yes, you can now use <laughs> combined. You can now use this or this one. It's now the remit of what you're allowed to use. That's a, that's a hard one because you, you, you're looking at next year's dub dub stuff and what they're doing next year. With, and it's always a, a bit of a treadmill, you know? I think people are actually going back and going back to like the dub dub DC of the version that they just like, dropped or like are they're now lowest one to know like oh what can i actually now use that i couldn't use before yeah absolutely uh so when it comes to um working with old code particularly when it comes to verifying old old code is still good and, it, and it's one of those things that old code doesn't change it doesn't break by itself but we call it bit rot you know, that the, the code has somehow evolved to not work anymore, which might be an iOS change or a Swift change or elsewhere in your library change. What approaches do you have for verifying your old code, making sure it remains good, remains useful, remains working correctly? Usually try to cover it with tests as much as you can. I mean, UI tests, if you cannot make it into unit tests, because usually if you want to try adding unit tests in old code, it usually means you need to break it up sometimes to make it even work, right? So before that, even just having simple UI tests that make sure that your code does at least what you expect it to, and then you can break it up and have at least the confidence when you refactor it something that it is still working the way you expect it to. Yeah. Um, uh one of my favorite iOS writers doesn't get anywhere nearly enough credit. Uh, it's John Reed from Quality Coding. And he has a simple mantra, which I've totally stolen because it's so good, that uh, if you're just changing your code and it isn't tested, that's not refactoring, that's just rewriting. Refactoring is when you've changed your code so it has the same effect afterwards it had beforehand. And the only way of doing that is to make sure you have tests in place to say, yes, it was all green before, refactor the code, all green after it has worked successfully. And that's what tests do for you, they let you prove it has worked correctly. So your answer, I think, is, has really nailed it in that if you have a big amorphous blob of code that Carola two years ago thought was brilliant, or me from two years ago thought was brilliant, or me from one year ago thought was brilliant, let's face it, um, you know, before you make any changes, before you pull it apart into smaller parts, do a simplest possible test. Does going through this function work correctly? And then pull it apart, pull it apart, pull it apart, you know, refactor it correctly, and then check your tests again. Does a whole chain now work correctly? And if you want to, you can now add more tests for the individual components to make sure it's got better. And this, this can turn, I think, a gnarly old piece of code into a rock solid piece of code for the future. Yes. Now you've got stacks of experience working on 
very large projects. I mean, VLC, for example, was a huge project. I can't imagine how big Netflix is and Apple Maps, you know, anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that in itself requires a different set of skills, right? Because you're not just noodling around, throwing something out there, you know, the last six months. Netflix is going to be here for a very long time. Apple Maps, I'm sure, was developed to the very highest quality Apple could manage in the time they, could, the time they had. So what techniques do you use or or try to uh, architect or structure your code so it does last longer and is more maintainable in the long term that actually made me smile because i was thinking like oh i'm just deleting everything and writing everything from scratch no <laughs> <laughs> um you try to have like certain components right make sure that you structure code very well that one piece of code has a distinct functionality. Ideally, and you have um, APIs that are very defined so that you can easily exchange new components, ideally. Like, don't have these big entanglements between code pieces. If the better they're defined, the easier it's going to be in the future to exchange something old for something new. Right. And that's critical, right? In fact, that's one of the advantages of... Yeah protocol-oriented programming is that we make these small components. This bit here, this is the exact one thing. There's no, you know, responder chain. Sammy Ed gets from dog, inherits from animal, inherits from mammal, inherits from big mess. You just have this sort of flatter hierarchy. Bring in this functionality, bring in this functionality. And it makes it replaceable. It makes it you can change your mind later. I think that's so important because no one in our industry claims they're going to get it right first time we pretty much accept we're going to totally screw the first one up. You know, plan to throw yes. the first one away is actually in a serious book by Fred Brooks about this exact same thing. And so structuring our code with that, thinking about our dependencies as, do I, can I remove that? Can I move it? Can I change it easily? If not, I've got a problem. So it's a really important way of thinking, I think. Yeah, I think also another way to think about this is if you can write good unit tests for it, that's a good sign that you structured it really well. Right. And, and presumably that's why you do amazing TDD, right, Carola? <laughs> <laughs> sure. We do have, honestly, we do have really great automation and good te test coverage for new features. Yes. And it is where it's, it's possible. Another, another amazing John Reed quote. I mean, this guy's full of stuff. He says, um, you know, uh, good tests give you the confidence to make bold changes to your code. And it's so true. When I've, when I've got uh, a project with comprehensive testing, I can rip out any code I want and put in new code. And if it passes tests, I, I'm happy. It doesn't matter because the tests guarantee it's the same. That's the magic of your tests. As long as you've written good tests, of course. Um, but that's a separate problem entirely. It's another conversation entirely, that one. Um, but yeah, having that confidence to change old code is hard. And this is why we end up with COBOL or Fortran code out there today that no one dares to touch because it's handling hundreds of millions of dollars a day and you don't want to dare break it because it would lose your job and you'd be, you'd be ruined forever kind of thing. Um, if I had tests, which of course it won't do because it's very, very old, if it did, you could take it out. You'd put Python in if you want to do it. It wouldn't really matter. As long as the output is the same as the input, boom, you are, you're safe. Yeah. Um, Prathmash says, again, this is really a matter of composition over inheritance. Um, I think that really gets to the, 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 the core of it because um, it really is, how can I compose many things? A little bit of this, a little bit of this, a little bit of this, and then rip one out, put a new one in, rip that out, put a new one in, as opposed to having a huge class hierarchy. And imagine, imagine if Apple took out UI Responder. Everything, everything would catch fire, right? And <laughs> nothing would work in full <laughs> yes. stop, right? And that's grim. Yes. It, it would all, it would all stop. There's a question here from uh, Glenn Sequera who asks, um, "How would you work on maintaining feature parity between iOS and Android when working on VLC? Because again, huge application, presumably a very large uh, core, presumably of like cross-platform media code. How did you make sure you had retained?" feature parity when working on these two very, very large apps across platforms. So I didn't work on the Android part, but feature parity, usually you have one platform go first when you have something new because they would 
get out the kinks, right? Of, <laughs> okay, how should that actually work with the core library that we had? And what are the edge cases that somebody didn't think about? And then you have the second platform just adopt that new feature as well, if that makes sense. And, and which one was the uh, guinea pig? <laughs> it was actually always Android. <laughs> of it it was. Was <laughs> we just had more developers on it, to be honest. Like, um, yeah, we didn't have that many MacBooks and iOS developers, and they were all always like, "No, I want to work um, more with Java." I don't know why. And those like weird. So we still had a lot of brackets, and they're like, "I don't know how this language works." Objective C. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah, that's obviously part of the problem. If they look at Java, it does it did look more modern at the time compared to Objective C. Even though I preferred Objective C because I've perhaps got Stockholm syndrome, um, <laughs> at, at the time Java looked a, a, a good bet. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's park legacy code and talk about a final area, which is conferences. Because right now um, you work with the Swiss Mobile Club, I think they're called, behind the scenes, who organise app builders. And um, what else do they organize? Because it's, it's also... Um, Swift Alps. Swift Alps. Are there meetups as well or just those two conferences? No, just those two conferences. Honestly, that is already enough. <laughs> just those two worldwide <laughs> conferences, you know, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so if folks haven't heard before, um, the Swiss MobyDevs group, they have App Builders, which is a, a large in-person event normally um, held. It was originally around Switzerland, but I think now I've picked Lugano as being particularly beautiful. And there's lakes and there's mountains and there's chocolate. Yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, um, and that's App Builders, the event in Lugano. But then also there's Swift Alps, uh, which is literally in the Alps in Crown Fontana, um, where you get a train there, then a funicular up, and then a bus to your hotel. It's the middle of nowhere, but it's small workshop-driven events. So these are very, very different kinds of events. Uh, and it, it, it's interesting because I've been to both and I can, I can compare them and I know which one I prefer. I'm not going to say it, I know which one I prefer. But what do you think separates a good event from a truly great event? For, for me, it's we try to put the attendees like first, I guess, where we want to make sure that they're having a good time, that they get to meet everybody that they want to, that they have enough opportunity for networking. I mm. think the networking part is so, so, so important. Um, and making sure that you cater to what the community needs, really. And making sure diversity is important as well in your speaker set and making sure everybody feels safe and knows where they have to go if something comes up. Having, yeah. So quite a few things then, really. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so it's actually, it's it's a lot. Yeah. Well, you mentioned diversity and that's one of the challenges that our industry, and particularly I think the Swift community has struggled with. Um, finding a genuinely diverse and inclusive range of speakers to put on stage to get a range of perspectives and a range of backgrounds, not just a single sort of fixed message from a load of white men, for example. Um, and you obviously run a very large conference at Builders. How do you work towards finding a diverse range of speakers? You need to definitely put the effort in and be aware of, okay, we're having that many white males, we have that many female speakers, we have that many people of color. Um, I need to make an effort that everybody is represented, which means, yes, you have to then, you have a lot of people who are coming also to you who want to speak at the conference, right? And then you have to be like, okay, no, we really need to fill these slots with a diverse range of people and make an effort for it. And it, it's sometimes harder because there's um, there's only a set range, right, of people that you sometimes know about, but you really need to make an effort. It's important. Do you think uh, having a female female organizer encourages more women to come forward, particularly because you're well known? Um, You've spoken at events previously; they know your name. I have to say, it helps just because. I know also other female speakers. It makes it easier for me at least to like reach out and talk with them. I think that that helps and they, they can talk with me about whatever 
little issues there might be. Um, but yeah, it, it helps definitely. Well, presumably they, they know you've been there. You know, you must have given your first talk at some point. Um, so you were that you were doing that. Oh, do I want to get on stage or not? Thing, and they they are now doing. They can ask your advice and say, you've been there. What did you do? How did you find it? What advice do you have to help me get better? Or can you put my name forward other places and more? So it's a nice oh, con yes. contact I also, to have. Yes, I also, honestly, I have. I feel like I have to encourage more than I have to do with, with guys. Like women are oftentimes like, oh, I'm not sure. I don't know if I can speak. Um, I don't know if I know yet enough. And I've, I've been there, honestly. Um, and being able to actually speak to that and letting you know, no, you know actually enough and you can go up there and you can give a talk and people actually want to hear what you have to say and you're just underestimating yourself. Mm. Uh, that definitely, yes, is important. Yeah, it's powerful too because it, the, the only way we are genuinely going to change is by having representation in places like this. You know, if you want to be able to look at somebody and say, yes, they look like me. Yes, that could be me. I could be on that stage next year. And that's very hard to do if if no one on that stage looks like you. You know, there was a conference. Yes. Um, it 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 didn't make it through because of the pandemic. But this year, there was a conference announced in the UK that had more people called Chris than it had all women. And uh, that is, you know, uh, it'd been hard to imagine five years ago. Never mind twenty twenty. Uh, and it makes me worry how much progress we're making. Because I know I know folks yeah. like you're trying. I know Natasha tries very very hard. Uh, uh, but it, sometimes it feels like we're almost standing still. We're not making enough progress to move forward. Yes. Yeah, I've, a lot of work needs to be done on encouragement because I can see it like when we have our call for papers, we have, I feel like 90% are guys mm. or even more than 90%. I think we had like two or three out of 70 from the call for papers. Wow. Yeah, it's it's. If anybody's out there and you're like part of a minority, <laughs> please go speak at conferences. I help you. You can reach out to me. I'm sure there are many other speakers in our community who want to help you and support you and get you there. We need it. Yeah, and, and if you are listening to this, uh, anybody like that, talk to Carola. She's she's really friendly. She'll help you out. You can, She'll take you to Lugano. Lugano is gorgeous. Honestly, you've got no idea how beautiful this town is. It's the the Italian section of Switzerland. It's, like I say, huge mountains, beautiful lakes, lovely people, great conference. Carola's there. Use this opportunity. We, we genuinely do want to help you get that first foot on the ladder. Because once you've done your first talk, you'll know, huh, that wasn't so bad. Or, huh, I hate speaking. But at least you know... <laughs> You know, for sure, I like that, I want to do it again, or I hate that, I never want to do it again. And that's what really matters, to have that first step to move forward with. And you can even start small. You don't need to be at a conference first. You can also just go to a local meetup, right, where you know a lot of people. Um, that helps. And you can try a talk out at the meetups first and then get better and then go to a conference. You don't need to start immediately with a conference. Or maybe you just want to give at your company a small talk about a recent feature that you worked on. Yeah. What, one thing I find continually interesting is how some folks are genuinely against making a change. Um, and literally, as we've been talking about having a more diverse group of speakers on stage, someone's pressed the dislike button on our video. I can see this like has gone up by one <laughs> because they go, no, I dislike the idea of having different men, people on stage, grr. Uh, and that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against a very, very seriously entrenched 20, 30, 40 years of men doing this. And we've got a lot of change to uh, to get through, I think. Now, from my perspective, one of the big differences between App Builders, the um, massive Lugano event, and um, Swift Alps is, of course, the size. You know, App Builders is a session-driven event where there's rows and rows and rows of people and a speaker goes to the front and says, I'm going to speak about SwiftUI or Combine, whatever it is. Whereas at Swift Alps, it was uh, an experimental idea originally, and now it's obviously a proven idea. It's been copied elsewhere in the world, but it was small workshops. It was, you know, intimate groups of people, 10 to 15 groups per area. And you do three a day, right? You do one on debugging, one on design patterns, one on networking, whatever it is. So you've got workshop driven and you've got session driven, and they're very, very different conferences. From your perspective, how do you think they pan out? Like, which one works better for different people? 
It depends on what you're looking for. I think the conference is good to give you an overview about what is out there, what what do I actually not know about, and just get a little bit of like everything and inspiration oftentimes. And the workshops are really, really good if you need to get some hands-on experience, right? We've done um, combined, for example, last year, and you get a really structured way of getting the first experiences like with new code tools and GraphQL we also had, and you actually have also a point of contact that you can later on then ask and say, hey, I'm working with this now, I'm struggling with this, can you help me? So if you really wanna dive into something new, the workshops are really, really good. Yeah, I, I, I said earlier, I know it's what I prefer and the answer is Swift Alps because- <laughs> Yes. For, for, for two reasons, firstly, you you literally get hands-on knowledge with six things so it's, it's it's three workshops a day you do across two days so six topics you get deep dive into and each workshop it's you and 12 other people approximately doing networking with, with a mentor around you and they give you a task to do and the job is to answer questions so you write the code right there you try it yourself solve this problem solve that problem build this thing hey mentor i'm stuck here can you guide me through and um it's stunning. In fact, I've, I've talked about your particular workshop there a few times um, from 2018, I think it was. You did, shock, a debugging workshop. And it was remarkable. What you did was, I remember, I remember being like five minutes into it thinking, you know, if she did this thing, it'd be amazing. Oh, that's exactly what she has done. Wow, this is amazing. Uh, and it was, you basically built this Mac app that when you run the app, it would crash. And when you diagnose the crash, it would tell you what to do next. And you fix that, you go to the next step, next step, next step. And each time it would crash somewhere else uh, and guide you towards where it needs to be. So it meant you actually had to use the tools to fix the actual app in front of you to result in a fully working app. And it was just completely mind-blowing as an idea. And that's why I love workshops, because you cannot open Slack and sit at the back and chat to your friends or go through Jira backlogs. You've got to sit there and do the work. It's a workshop. You gotta do some actual work. And I find them really, really powerful. And you have a lot of like-minded people around you who are doing the same thing and who are just excited about learning something new. And it's like a very intimate group. So that helps a lot. Well, it does. Because again, one thing this format does is say, listen, everyone's gonna pair. And we ask that you have a different pair for every workshop. And so by the end of it, you've spent an hour, hour and a half with six different people very close contact, chatting away to them. So you, you leave with actual friends as opposed to folks you just sort of meet at the coffee station in a session-driven event. I mean, I, I, don't get me wrong, I love session events as well. But for me, the real value of learning, trying, experimenting safely is always going to be sessions. So for, for, for folks who like the idea of a conference, They've found one near to them. The lockdown is slowly lifting. So hopefully maybe NS Spain, for example, or PragmaConf might come back in October. Um, they're thinking of going, but they're not sure. Maybe they're shy. Maybe they don't know what they'll do. Maybe they're not going with anybody. Um, what advice or encouragement do you have for folks who are thinking of going to an event? Well, <laughs> go try it out at least. I know it can be hard. Like you have to travel. Um, you have to take maybe some days off from work as well. But for me, it's always been so, so worth it because you meet so many people who work on the same stuff as you. You get to actually talk to people that you only know from Twitter sometimes and you get so inspired and you just build your network and you will likely meet somebody who can help you with your problems later on. So. I don't know, I've built so many great connections. I found personally so many friends through conferences and it's just, it just widens your horizon. So go. <laughs> yeah. I also hope that folks are using this chance to go to virtual conferences, you know, remote conferences, because that gives you the chance to get a feel for what it's like without that extra scary factor of leaving your home and going to Switzerland or Paris or wherever it is you want to go for your event for. Um, because you can now do that. There are so many options of having remote events. You just had one, App Builders, UI conference happened. I'm doing my own um, Hacking Swift Live in a month or so. Um, and you can go there, you can have a bit of social contact, a bit of experience with the event without all the scariness behind it, which is uh, really nice. Yeah, 
And you can always stay in the background as well, right? You don't need to be the one who's like going up to the speaker after a talk. You can just like stand next to them, listen in. Same at the virtual conferences as well. Yeah. You can just like look what other people are saying in the chats. So Stuff has an interesting point here. He's saying, if you ask me, online or remote is the future. Now, um, obviously, Apple was in person every single year until last month, and it went online slash remote. Did it work out better for you? Would you consider it again next year, or are you keen to move back to an in-person event? So we're doing a hybrid version next year because we realized actually having it remote opened it up to more people because it's, like I said, you need to travel otherwise. And not everybody has the option to travel. So that is definitely an aspect that we really, really liked. I would not want to have an online only event because I really like having everybody in one space and building experiences together having experiences together going to a nice restaurant with people and getting to know them in person and just like having a chat over coffee i would miss those things yeah i, I know what you mean uh, i get that you know obviously online is cheaper to organize there are no flights to pay no hotels to pay no lunches to make and similar but the the experience of being there having random interactions with people you sort of walk by and say oh you're so and so I, I read that blog post by you it was i loved it or i saw you uh, on a podcast and really enjoyed what you're saying or it just gives you an entry point to meet folks who otherwise you wouldn't have met i think it's called the hallway track right the the that becomes as important as the main session tracks because those random encounters a chance to meet someone you hadn't met before and get a fresh idea or see their code or get inspired by their work is just invaluable right yes absolutely agree and one thing that i think is interesting in our industry particularly because let's face it to be an ios developer you've already bought a macbook pro you've bought an iphone you know that the, the barrier of entry is very very high um one thing i find interesting is that we spend quite a lot of money sometimes at our conferences on social events going out and on a boat dinner party or something like that, you know, doing fun things. I get that, people want to do fun things, but we're already quite privileged <laughs> as, as a community, you know, we're already extraordinarily wealthy compared to, um, as, a, as, a, as a group compared to many other types of developer. How important are those social events? And do you think really the money matters there or not? I mean, the money shouldn't matter, but it's, I, I notice it's tough for people who don't have the financial means. I mean, you can still get like a MacBook, a used MacBook or a used phone to start off. But with those conferences, diversity tickets, there are plenty of them, make use of that. Um, but yeah, I don't, yeah. the social events are important, but I don't think you need to necessarily spend a lot of money on something just to have a great network with people and a good time. Fine. And one last question about conferences. Uh, if someone's thinking, actually, my part of the world where I live right now does not have a conference, I'm thinking of filling that gap. What would your advice be to them? Do it. Just do it. <laughs> no, just... Um, <laughs> you can start small, right? Get... And some kind of area where you can hold your talk, like go to an office if you can, or just some bigger space where you can get everybody in. Um, find somebody who's able to give a talk or two and just bringing everybody sometimes in one room helps as well. I We've done here some just dinners with iOS developers where you can just like start talking with like-minded people. It can be something small like that. And then if you find somebody else do something bigger, you go from there. I have seen you tweet about the dinners locally to where you are, and I am so envious. Uh, you know, I, I live in the countryside in, in England. It's very nice part of the countryside, but there's nothing around me. Uh, that's why I run my own conference here in Bath, because uh, there is no Bath-based conference, there's no Bristol-based conference, there's nothing near me conference-wise. That's why I have my own, because there's nothing around. Um, and you can almost willpower things into happening. Like, if we build it, they will come becomes almost true. And if your costs are low enough, if you can find a company with a, with a meeting room where you can use, 
even even Apple actually let you use their business rooms in their Apple stores quite often to do larger meetups. You can make things happen inexpensively and take it from there. And one thing actually, I don't think f- folks realize, um, you think, oh, or I'm starting really small, I've got to fly in a speaker. No, you don't. Just, just, just pick a video from YouTube, watch that together, and then talk about it. You know, what did we learn? Do we like this idea? Let's try and apply that idea in our application we've just made. Just try things out together, immediately gets you moving. And if people like it, they'll come back. If they don't, they won't. <laughs> but you won't know till you actually tried it. You know, you've got to actually make that first step forward and, and get somewhere. Absolutely. People are always grateful if somebody organizes something. Yes, because it is hard, right, <laughs> being an organizer, because you, you don't get the same uh, conference experience as everybody else, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're always the person who needs to go everywhere and help out with, like, oh, no, that TV doesn't show any more our sponsors, and, oh, we're having problems with the code racks, we're running out of text or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, it's, it's very rewarding. It's so so, so la- last year, so someone asked it. me, uh, "Did you did you see my talk at Hacking Swift Live?" They said, and I said, "No, I didn't see it. I'm sorry. I know I'm the organizer. I was over there looking at coffee, trying to get coffee to you know organize the coffee for everyone else to have at the break. Uh, I think I saw one talk out of the eight or so we had on the day. <clears throat> so because it, you just start running around so much, and I can see why folks are very happy if you step forward and say, "Yes, I want to organize this," because it's it's difficult. It's 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 a job for sure." And actually, I, I think it's an area where Natasha, the robot, is particularly talented because, um, you know, folks will say, how does she get such a huge range of speakers to her conferences? And the answer seems to be, from my perspective, from what I've seen her work at, is most folks will say, okay, I'm doing a conference in five months' time. I'm going to email A and B and C and D and say, hey, do you want to come over and speak at my conference? That's how they do it. Natasha does it 12 months ahead of time. She builds a relationship with these people, gets to know them, you know, watches their videos and spends spend that time sowing seeds of trust. That when they say, hey, do you want to come and speak? They're like, yeah, of course I want to come and speak. That sounds great. Let's do that, you know? There's no sort of last-minute panic rush for speakers because she knows them all already. She's got that finger on the pulse of the community, and that's so important, I think. Yes. It was the same, I think, with Anna Spain. I remember <laughs> Louis reaching out. He didn't even tell me when it was and where <laughs> I mean, you know where, but he didn't even tell me when it was. He was like, hey, do you want to speak at the next one? I was like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have so much love for NS Spain and Lewis. It's an amazing conference. And, um, you know, folks, if you are in Spain or any European country, and actually folks come from around the world to NS Spain, it's a worldwide conference, um, you, 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 you go to NS Spain at least once in your life. It's like Dub Dub. Go there once in your life because they time it to coincide with a wine festival. Uh, and it's packed with people in an astonishing venue, huge, great list of speakers, uh, and of course, a wine festival. So what's not to like, right? <laughs> uh, so, Cara, thank you very much for your time. It's been a full hour now. Uh, thanks for taking all my questions and questions here from the guests as well. Uh, where can folks find you on social media? Twitter underscore Carol underscore N. I'm sorry, it's complicated. <laughs> um, you can also email me if you like. It's already an open source, nits.carola at googlemay.com. Um, but Twitter is usually the one where you reach me fastest. And now I'm curious, when I launch Netflix next, which bit of this was made by Carol and Nitz? <laughs> <laughs> um, the recent one that I built was the brightness slider and the lock control which I'm really, really happy about. Honestly, the lock right now where you can give it to your kid maybe and they watch something and they were not accidentally like switching out of Netflix. Oh, that made me happy. Yeah, my my kids have now passed that age. The youngest is now six years old. And we saw something just so beautiful a few weeks ago. Um, when, I, when I do these streams, the kids want to use the internet. Of course they do. They'll say, Daddy, you finished the internet now. I want to talk to Siri or something like that, right? Um, <laughs> so we make them watch a movie. You know, you get the movie on an iPad, sit and watch a movie on your iPad offline so you're not taking away from my internet bandwidth, right? Um, and a few weeks ago, I came downstairs after doing one of these videos and my my youngest, Charlotte, was on the couch with headphones on watching a movie <clears throat> and she was in streams of tears. I'm like, sweetheart, why are you crying? And she said, oh, the movie's so sad. You know, she's able to understand now that it's a sad movie and it's okay to feel sad. And then a few minutes later, she'd she'd watch the same film. It was Frozen 2. She'd put the volume down to zero 
And I thought, why did you do that? And she said, well, this bit's scary. I don't want it to scare me so much. So she's able to regulate herself more now by understanding what the sad bits are and when the loud bits are and control it. But yeah, certainly for under younger kids, block off everything. <laughs> don't don't change the brightness. Don't press the home button. Don't do anything that is not in any way going to change the, the thing you're trying to watch. Uh, once again, I want to thank my sponsor, Instabug. They make it super easy to add uh, bug reporting and fixing into your code with the SDK. Add one line of code and it'll help you find and fix crashes faster. Go and check them out at Instabug. Once again, thanks to all the folks coming here <coughs> asking questions and to uh, Carolyn for answering them very graciously with her time. And for next, next time, folks, take care. Goodbye.